Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. My name is Jonathan Derbyshire. I'm Executive Comments Editor of the Financial Times, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening. Um, before we begin, a few housekeeping uh, rules. Can I ask you to turn your mobile phones off or to silent? We're filming today, as I'm sure you know, and live streaming on the web. So a very big welcome to those of you watching online. And a reminder that the hashtag for this evening's event is RSA Shafak. So please do join the discussion on Twitter. Um, the most important task facing me today is to introduce our wonderful speaker, Elif Shafak. Welcome, Elif. She's, as I'm sure you all know, an award-winning novelist and the most widely read female writer in Turkey. She is also a cultural commentator, a political scientist, and an activist on women's rights, minority rights, and freedom of speech, and I should say a regular contributor to the op-ed pages of the FT. Um, she's a member of We Forum Global Agenda Council on Creative Economy at Davos, and a founding member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Her books have been translated into 47 languages, and she's been awarded the prestigious Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres. Her latest novel, Three Daughters of Eve, has just come out in paperback. And she's here today to disabuse us of the notion that we're on a relentless one-way march towards progress and towards widespread liberal values, and to remind us just how provisional democracy really is. So just a word about the format of the evening. Elif and I will talk for 20, 25 minutes, um, and then I will open the conversation to the floor. I'm sure there are lots of questions. Um, Elif, we're in this magnificent hall uh, at the RSA, and the RSA, of course, is a, one of the fruits of the 18th century Enlightenment. Um, there is a sense, these are dark times, and there is a sense that Enlightenment values are under attack or in retreat. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Um, first of all, it's such a, such a pleasure for me. Uh, I'm very excited about this conversation. It is true, I mean, where we are right now, one, one forgets, but one should not forget, in, in my opinion, because memory is so important, especially when things are changing so fast. A place like this that has been a hub for freedom of speech, for, for ideas, for exchange of ideas, culture, intel, intellect, um, I think is, is, is incredibly important. And in many parts of the world, we see a regression, if you will, and I think it's very important to understand that this is not only happening in the East, in the Middle East, in some parts of the world that were until recently regarded as turbulent countries, wobbly countries. Um, but there was this perception that the rest of the world, mostly the Western world, was more safe, stable, more solid, and in a way beyond that stage, beyond that historical turbulence. Um, but now we know that we're all living in liquid times. Now we, all, we know that we can, we can go backwards very fast. In some countries, that decline is much faster. It's much more visible, such as Turkey, where I come from. But my point is, what happened in Turkey can happen in other parts of the world. And so we have to see the similarities. Uh, we have to see what is at stake. And that is why I believe this is an a very important time for global solidarity, global sisterhood, global feminism, global activism. People who were perhaps not really engaged in politics um, might find themselves more and more involved and responding to what's happening in the world today. 
I mean, there is, it's true that probably after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we slightly prematurely in the West um, announced the end of history, but history is back with a vengeance. Absolutely. Um, in the form of secessionist pressures, rising populism, nativism, and, and so on. Um, and you very rightly say that this is not just a phenomenon restricted to um, traditionally unstable parts of the world. It's spreading itself across the world. But let's talk for a bit about your homeland, about Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the settings for your most recent novel, Three Daughters of Eve. Mm -hmm. Just, could we talk a bit about what's happening in Turkey? Because you said that what could happen in Turkey could happen elsewhere. So how would you characterize what's happened um, under the, the rule of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan? I think the, we have been going backwards, both in a very, both gradually, but also with a bewildering speed. And we live in a state, um, collectively, in, the, the mood is almost every week something else happens, almost every day something else happens. And this is something that tires people. And after a while you start, you stop reacting, which I find very dangerous, a, a certain kind of numbness, indifference. I think when societies go through very dark tunnels, people become either extremely pol politicized and angry and more and more emotional, or they become deliberately depoliticized and they just want to say, okay, I want to live my own life, my own, stay in my own cocoon, stay in my own circle. So I'm very interested in ways in which the society also changes. We do know that authoritarian regimes uh, create lots of problems within state level, but we do not talk as much about what happens at a society level, mm. you know, what happens to the individuals how we internalize intimidation, how we internalize fear. I think we're living at a time in which emotions have become even more important. Emotions guide and misguide politics to a large extent. And overall in Turkey, there's a lot of anger, fear, also lots of conspiracy theories, paranoia. In my childhood, we grew up, uh, and I went through the whole national education in, in Turkey, primary school, middle school, and I remember, you know, saying, talking about this in the classroom, how we thought we were surrounded by enemies on all sides. Mm -hmm. So we used to say Turkey is a country that is surrounded by water on three sides and by enemies on four sides. And when you grow up like that, you learn not to trust anyone. Um, but throughout early 2000s, there was maybe an optimism shared by many intellectuals uh, or, or writers, myself included, that things could be better, that perhaps Turkey could someday become part of EU, and that paranoia could dissolve. I think that is back with a vengeance. So what I'm trying to say is tribalism, the thought that we are a tribe and everybody belongs in their own tribes, nationalism, this ethos of strong state, mm. which in a way allows me to compare Turkey with Russia, because I think there are big similarities when you follow their state tradition. They both come from empires and from very strong state traditions. Uh, and also this notion that the state is something that needs to be protected at the expense of the individuals. Now, in a proper democracy, you protect the individual from the excessive power of the state. In Turkey, it's the other way around. You protect the state, even though the state is very robust from the words of individuals. So anything that you say, anything that you write might offend the state, even though the state is quite, mm. you know, humongous 
and pervasive so that we have all these laws that make it possible to jail people because of something they have written, something they have said. In a nutshell, I believe every writer, every journalist, every academic in Turkey knows that. Because of something you say, because of an article, because of a tweet or even a retweet, you can get into trouble in a day very mm. fast, very easily. You can be attacked in pro-government papers, almost lynched on social media, and even arrested, exiled. So as a result, when we write, when we speak, there's that knowledge at the back of our minds. And I believe there's consequently a widespread self-censorship among the literati in Turkey. But this is something that we find very difficult to talk about. It's also quite embarrassing. You know, how do you talk about the kind of fear that is inside of you, not necessarily outside, pointing a gun or, 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 or restricting you, but something that comes from within. Uh, but I believe we need to talk about self-censorship too. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, we have been going backwards. We uh, certainly, I see the government, the present government as, as a very authoritarian government. But what interests me also is to see how, as nationalism increases, as religiosity and Islamism increase, also sexism increases in mm -hmm. Turkey. I think these things go hand in hand. So patriarchy, homophobia, sexism, these are encouraged when states become more authoritarian and when societies become more religious and nationalist. I mean, one of the implications of what you've you said about the attitudes that were taken by members of the Turkish intelligentsia in the 90s, and you included yourself in this, yeah. is that you were, to some extent, complacent about the achievements of secularism and liberalism. Um, but your, your point is that those achievements are never permanent. They're always provisional. Um, and that complacency, perhaps, um, left space for... Um, Islamist retrenchment that we've seen today. Yeah, I think we, we tend to think that history goes forward. Yeah. There's that presumption at somewhere in our, in our minds. Uh, but as you said, of course, you can, you, you can never take it for granted. So things can decline very fast. We have seen this in Turkey. One other thing I think we have seen in Turkey, and I believe this could be relevant for other parts of the world, is not to confuse democracy with majoritarianism. Yeah, These are completely different things. So what we have experienced in Turkey is you might have a ballot box and relatively free elections. I'm not talking about the last referendum, which in my opinion was very dubious in, in, in many ways, but overall, over the years, relatively free elections and the ballot box and relatively regular elections. But that in itself is not enough to sustain a democracy. So if you don't have a rule of law, separation of powers, definitely a diverse free media, because that was the first thing we lost, the media. And then independent academia, women's rights, minority rights, together with all these components, you have a thriving and surviving democracy. Now, when all those other components are one by one demolished and you end up with only the ballot box, you, you have a majoritarianism, a system that is a majoritarianism. And from majoritarianism to authoritarianism, it is a very short step. So this is the pattern that I see in some other parts of the world, including Hungary, to a certain extent in Poland. This slide, even India, slide into majoritarianism. This is what's sometimes called a liberal democracy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, without wanting to suggest that 
we in this country are on the um, rocky road to uh, authoritarianism. Are you, I, I have to ask you, are you troubled um, when um, people and uh, newspapers suggest that democracy resides in some, uh, some notion of the will of the people which gains expression in, um, in referendums? I think we are we're going through a time in which the very notion of democracy is being questioned from all sides, from the left and from the right. And to me, it's very important to renew faith in democracy. I'm not saying that democracy in itself is a bed of roses, but it is the best system we, as human beings, could come up with. So let's work on its flaws, let's work on its deficiencies, but let's not cast it aside. Because what are we going to substitute it with, replace it with? I'm worried about that, that vacuum. So there's a part of me that firmly believes in the need to renew faith um, in, in democracy. On the other hand, I am very worried about the ways in which we started to romanticize the people. Now, we, we live with these dualities, with these binary oppositions that in fact are not very deep, are very shallow, but because they are repeated so many times, we take them for granted. But I think we need to question that, them, these dualities. What is that dichotomy between the people versus the elite? Who is exactly the elite? How do we draw those boundaries? How do we define it? I find it very dangerous when populist movements pretend to speak in the name of the people and attack a more abstract notion of elite, whereas in fact, perhaps, what we are experiencing is a shift of elites, you know? Um, people, many populist demagogues, they too are part of an elite, but a different elite with a different ideology. But it doesn't mean that they're not elite themselves. On the other hand, romanticizing, over-romanticizing the people, the vogue, brings to mind lots of patterns that existed in 1930s. I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but there are certain patterns we need to remember. Um, so, of course, democracy is incredibly precious, but at the same time, civil society, for me, is very important. And when I say civil society, citizens who are engaged, who ask questions, media, journalists who ask questions, academia who is more independent, together with all these components of functioning civil society helps the democracy to carry on. Otherwise, just romanticizing an abstract notion of people and constantly using a cliche of word elite, I'm afraid is not going to get us anywhere. And just the opposite, it's going to work directly into the hands of populist demagogues because they like those dualities. They, they always need an other to attack. Um, so there's a part of me that longs for a more nuanced debate than these binary oppositions. You were talking about Erdogan's uh, assault on civil society and the silencing of intellectuals and writers inside Turkey. Does that place a particular responsibility on people like you who are in, I don't know if you like the word exiles, to speak up and to identify injustice wherever it appears? I think it's a, it's a, it's a difficult question, you know, because as writers, particularly as novelists, I believe we are very solitary creatures. Most of us are introverts and we like to live in our own imaginary world, in our own imaginary cocoon. So it's a challenge for us to come into the public space and to talk about politics, governments. Um, 
But at the same time, I always believe that if you come from countries like Turkey, Nigeria, Egypt, Venezuela, Pakistan, you don't have the luxury of being apolitical if you're a novelist. Now, my point is, ever since 2016, I believe many British writers have started to feel the same way. Many American authors have started to feel the same way. Almost this urgency, immediacy, the need to say something about what's happening. So I see more and more novelists in this country as well, writing more political pieces, writing more political novels. And that shift to me is, is quite interesting. So overall, I believe we do have a responsibility to speak up. We must speak up louder. But when I say this, I'm not by any means talking about politics in a narrower sense. I'm not interested in party politics. I'm not interested at all in a partisan position, you know. Not that kind of politics. I come from women's movement, and one of the many wonderful things that feminism taught us was how politics is everywhere. It's also in the private space. It's also in our kitchens, in our bedrooms. So it's not only about political parties that I'm talking about. I'm longing for a kind of political questioning that goes beyond party politics. And I believe for writers, questions are more important than answers in general. So just to be able to say, okay, why is it like that? Can we talk about this? Let's talk about that political taboo, that cultural taboo, that sexual taboo. I like that attitude, but I don't like it when writers try to preach. I don't like it when writers try to teach something. So it's always up to the reader what to make with those questions, but I think it's the writer's responsibility just to ask the right questions. Um, that's a very distinctive conception then about what the responsibilities of the, the public responsibilities of the writer are. What are the questions writers should be asking then? Um, particularly in the, in, in the West. As we, I mean, obviously there are very distinctive challenges that writers face in, in, in countries like Turkey, but what about, what about writers here? What are the questions we should be asking? One of them, as you've said, is the nature of democracy. Both in terms of, you know, I'm thinking in vertical and horizontal lines, both in terms of time and place, what we tend to forget often is how the same story could be told from different angles. It's a storyteller's job to remind people that history, for instance, as we go back in time, can be told in different ways. There's no such thing as history with a capital H. In countries like Turkey, it's very easy to forget this because we go to school, you know, we memorize those books, the dates of battles, the dates of peace treaties. It never occurs to us that history had, might have been experienced in different ways by different people. So we like to think of ourselves in Turkey as a mighty empire, we brought justice wherever we went, we brought education wherever we went, and I know to a British audience this sounds very familiar, in fact. <laughs> but here's the difference. In Turkey, when you walk to a bookstore, you cannot that easily find alternative interpretations of history. Of course you can find some historians who challenge, but it's not that easy because people who question the official historiography often find obstacles and they can be sued, they can be put on trial uh, under Article 301 and other, other articles in the Constitution. So for me, every nation state has its own official version of history. But the difference between a democracy and a non-democracy is in a democracy you have a plurality of voices, a plurality of other interpretations that say, wait a minute, 
Was it the same history if I tell it through the eyes of a minority member, of this person, that person? So for instance, the Ottoman Empire, what I like to do in my novels is, let's say the golden age of the Ottoman Empire, um, the, the, the time of Sultan Suleiman, was a very different time if you tell the story through the eyes of an Armenian silversmith or a Jewish miller or a concubine in the harem, or a prostitute who accompanied the army every time they went on their conquests. Depending on who is telling the story, the empire story changes. So it is those voices from the periphery that I think is important to bring to the center, because we have forgotten those voices. It, it's certainly true that the historical record looks different depending on the perspective that you view it from. But isn't it also true that um, we've seen today that the, the unfortunate consequences of the claim that um, there's not one truth but multiple truths? I mean, we're, we're living in the, the post-truth era or the era of fake news, after all. Um, and the political consequences of treating truth, as I think Nietzsche described truth, as a mobile army of metaphors and metonymies. And that brings with it an unpleasant political consequences, doesn't it? Absolutely. We but we can't hold on to the notion of truth. Certainly. But once again, we go back to those binary oppositions. To say that there is not such thing as truth with a capital T or history with a capital H doesn't mean that there is no truth. Um, so multiplicity is not the negation of truth. And I think this, this, this is a very important point you're making because of the times we're living in, all these alternative facts, uh, unfortunately, the blurring of the line and, uh, between fact and fiction. And ironically, maybe fiction writers now have a bigger responsibility to talk about the truth. Um, but coming back to your previous question, if I may try to connect them, I think it's incredibly important for writers in the Western world as well, for all of us, to try to bridge those gaps because those gaps matter, the cognitive gaps, cultural gaps, um, it is almost as if we live in different islands, different mental ghettos, and depending on where you live, you get your information from different sources. So all these echo chambers, but the very gap between the echo chambers is, is quite worrying, because no matter how much you talk about the truth, it, it won't matter if people cannot hear it just because they live in their own island. So how are we going to reach out to people who are not necessarily liberals, democrats, or, or not necessarily of the same, let's say, worldview? How do we create a common language? Do we still have a language that circulates, that extends, transcends those boundaries? Mm. This was one of the first things that we lost in Turkey. And when a society becomes extremely polarized, I am afraid uh, populist demagogues benefit enormously from this. So the lack of communication between people of different backgrounds only works into the hands of, of those populist demagogues. We were talking about the Enlightenment at the beginning of this conversation. Of course, the Enlightenment was, um, among other things, the birth of something we call the public sphere. And it sure. follows from what you're saying that actually what, what we've lost is any notion of the public sphere. Absolutely. To me, it's, it's, it's always interesting how different societies describe, you know, regard the, the public space. And of course, all across the Middle East, the public space is a very patriarchal domain. We need to talk about this. City after city, country after country, we see women being pushed back into the private space. 
um, when you travel across the Middle East, you will see that streets belong to men, you know, public squares belong to men, lots of the public discussions belong to men. So one of the central questions for me, concerns, is how to bring more women into the public space, how to create more diversity in the public space, but also how to hopefully en enable or facilitate people to communicate across different political divisions. Because that's the first thing we forget. We might vote for different political parties, we might have different political views, but there are lots of other things we still share what are the, those shared values around humanism, around democracy, around core central values that you can still bring people together? So that was my, one of my central concerns when I was writing The Three Daughters of Eve. Maybe some of you have read the book. There are three young women attending Oxford University in the book. Uh, they all come from Muslim backgrounds. So there's Shirin, who is the child of exiled parents. Um, and she's very critical of all, all religions, but in particular, she's very critical of Islam because of the lack of gender equality. And she's British-Iranian. Uh, there's Mona, who is Egyptian-American. She wears a headscarf, and she is a practicing Muslim, and she complains about Islamophobia because this is something she experiences a lot, almost on a daily basis. And then there's Piri, who is a Turkish girl, and she has lots of questions. And I think we Turks are usually very confused people about identity, the past, so I wanted her to be the confused one. And together, jokingly, they call themselves the sinner, the believer, and the confused. But my point was, can they still be sisters? Can they still find the ground for sisterhood? Are there things that bring them together? Because what I observe in countries like Turkey, because those political divisions are so deep, Women from different backgrounds are not able to come together, even around core values that should concern all of them equally. I want to bring the audience in in a moment. One last question. You've been developing in this conversation a very rich notion of what politics is. It's not, as you said earlier, it's not just about party politics. It seems to me one of the things you're saying is that politics is always, in one way or another, a struggle over historical memory. And that's true of the Brexit vote, which you could see as the final spasm of post-colonial post melancholia in this country. We've seen uh, really quite violent tussles over the meaning of the American Civil War. That, that question hasn't even been settled yet. Um, uh, in Charlottesville in August, uh, there's another example one thinks of um, in the French president, presidential election campaign where Emmanuel Macron attracted huge criticism for describing the war in Algeria as a crime against humanity. So these, these struggles over historical memory are absolutely central to what you're talking about, and they're a central part of your fiction, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and in many ways, in fact, 19th century is not over. You know, we're still living, especially when you go to the Middle East, you, you see this, but not only in that region of the, of the world, in many parts of the world, questions about memory, how do we choose to remember collective memory, but also how do we choose to forget? I think these are political matters. I thought about this maybe more carefully when I was writing The Bastard of Istanbul, because that is a book that focuses on the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian family, Armenian-American family. And what I have observed, especially in third generation Armenians was how powerful their memory is. I have met many young Armenians who carry the memories of their grandfathers, of their grandmothers. 
Whereas for a young Turkish student of the same age, it's more forgetting, it's more about forgetting. We are a society of collective amnesia in Turkey. And I think uh, that creates lots of problems because you cannot come to terms with the mistakes you have made, with the dark pages in your history, as well as the bright sides, mm. if you cannot have a memory. And again, in this book, as I was comparing Oxford and Istanbul, that was another thing in my mind, because when you walk into the Bodleian Library in Oxford, at Oxford University, to me it's amazing to see this sign, this placard on the wall, with the names of the patrons who supported the library throughout the centuries. Now, those centuries were not easy centuries for British history. Lots of things happened throughout that time. But what is interesting for me to see is the continuity of support for the library. Uh, I say this in a joking, as a joke, but it's also very true. Had we had such a library in Istanbul in the 12th century, 13th century, today that place would not be a library, would have changed names so many times and would probably have been turned into a shopping mall, you know? So why do we erase the past? Why do we think modernity is constantly erasing the past with no sense of memory? Mm. And if, if a society keeps doing that, that, can you ever become more mature? So these are questions that really concern me, collective memory and also collective forgetting. Mm. Um, Barack Obama was always fond of quoting uh, Martin Luther King's saying that the arc of justice bends, uh, the arc of history bends towards justice. But if what you're saying is, is right, then um, the, the, at the very least, the arc of history is very, very long indeed. Mm. Let me open the discussion to the audience. Um, so we've just heard that we are we're still living through a kind of long 19th century. Is that how it feels? Um, is there a microphone going around at the back? Question at the back there. And if I can make the ritual request that you actually ask questions rather than deliver speeches because we want to get as many people in as you can. The gentleman at the back. Thank you. I mean, the democracy that we get in any society is dependent upon it, the culture as well. And uh, as, as what you call as the uh, writers, the, as uh, leaders of the culture, are, um, are what you call uh, generating and blending the culture, uh, writers have a role in improving the nature of democracy in any society. So yes, I mean, you have been telling us what you've been doing, but uh, let's, let's, let's say, let's, I'd like you to hear, I'd like you to say something about, more about what's the role of writers in, in promoting a culture which is more uh, conducive to democracy. Yes, yeah, let's take a few more. So that's a question about the role of writers. There's a question here and then a question there, and then I'll come back. We'll do three at a time. Yeah. Hi, um, thank you for your talk. I'm from India, so when things happened in Turkey, I was obviously very terrified about what could happen in my own country. And the main argument that's presented in India when you talk about populism and Modi is the idea that it's a sovereign decision made by the people, and therefore you're not right to even question it. And that's why they censor social media. So I was wondering how you could argue against populism whilst not arguing against the basis of democracy in a way, which is the sovereignty of the people. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was <coughs> um, interested in your references to civil society as being a sort of core component of a healthy democracy, yet civil society doesn't just happen. And I suppose I'm interested in 
whether you think civil society needs in some way to be organised, and if so, how? So we've got uh, three questions. So the first question, uh, if I understood it, was about the role of writers in promoting culture. You talked about raising questions, but the suggestion here is that there's actually a positive um, set of positive obligations or responsibilities that the writer has. There's a question here about the relationship between sovereignty and populism and how you can criticise uh, populism without infringing the fundamental principles of democracy. I think that was right. And then there was a question about civil society and how you protect it and develop it. Okay. To me, it's very interesting to see how most of the conflicts that we are experiencing today revolve around culture and perceptions of culture. So, of course, economy is very important, economic inequalities are incredibly important, and we need to put more effort into bridging those inequalities. But when we look at the elections, how they play out, uh, the rise of lots of populist movements in country after country, many of them are focusing on either their perception of a loss of culture, yeah? um, and, and many of the debates are in fact, in, fact, um, in a way, moving in, in that direction. So it, it, what I'm trying to say is we can't understand what's happening in the world today by solely focusing on financial inequalities, economic problems, in order to understand how people vote, why people vote in the way they do, we need to pay more attention to culture. Uh, many people were very um, surprised to see Trump's election, but the, the people who were not surprised at all, within the academia I'm talking about, were people who followed the Tea Party movement. And when you follow their writing, year after year, they have been saying, there is a movement here, and it's centered on culture. Mm -hmm. It is centered on perceptions of culture. When you follow the, the writings of academics in Poland, Poland is relatively uh, not a very diverse society. Poland does not have too many immigrants. You know, more than 90% is white Catholic. We are talking about a country in which the notion of immigrants the danger of losing their culture was one of their central themes throughout their elections, even though, sociologically speaking, it is a more, relatively speaking, more monolithic country or less diverse country. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is perceptions of culture, how we perceive whether we're losing our culture or not, is going to be incredibly important in this age. That is why I, I believe writers, artists, have to play a much more active role because this is our terrain also. This is, a, this is a domain in which we have been producing and we need to speak up. Um, many of those perceptions are misguided and they're misguided by emotions. Now, connecting that with, with the question of India, what worries me is, and I've seen this pattern in Turkey, when we romanticize the people this much, it comes at the cost of denigrating the intellect. We easily confuse knowledge with information and information with wisdom. I think these are three different things. We live in an age in which we have a lot of information about everything and anything. Some theorists call it the pancake generation. You know, when you make a pancake, it's quite thin, isn't it? And it spreads 
across everywhere, every inch on the pan, just like that. We have a little bit of information about everything, every little issue, but it doesn't go very deep because information is quite different than knowledge. Knowledge requires analytical skills, whereas wisdom is something else altogether. And for that, I think one needs emotional intelligence, experience, empathy, and lots of other things. So the problem is, because we have a little bit of information about everything, we tend to think we know issues. And when, then comes these populist movements telling us the people know the right thing. Even in this country, we've heard uh, some demagogues saying, you are, the right, you, know, you are the people, you are the real people, you made the right choice, you don't need to listen to, the, to these people because they are the elite. And that's the end of the story. That is a very dangerous anti-intellectual movement. I never understood, I moved to England about eight years ago, I never understood why the word public intellectual is used so negatively in such a pejorative way in this country, you know? It is seen as a sign of arrogance, but why? Uh, maybe we do need public intellectuals. I think we need more women intellectuals as well in, in, in all countries, in all spaces. So I'm worried about this anti-intellectual movement that goes hand in hand with populist movements. In Turkey, we've had many politicians, top level politicians saying, our real voters are people who have not graduated from university. People who graduated from university have been westernized too much. And that's why they're corrupt. They're not, they don't carry the real Anatolian soul. These are very, very um, dangerous comparisons. Again, after Brexit, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but we have heard Nigel Farage saying the decent people, the real people in the UK have spoken up. Then that brings to mind who are the unreal people? You know, what is this? Are, is there another people who is not decent over there? So again, dualities, that's what they keep doing. And I see these populist patterns that worry me a lot. Now, coming back to civil society from there, you're absolutely right. It needs to, you know, you need to be organized. Um, but at the same time, there's a part of me that very much respects individuality, to, to be honest. I'm a little bit wary, a little bit cautious when it comes to um, collective identities. So, of course, it's important to have NGOs, civil society organizations. But when it comes to, if it, if it narrows down into tribes, or, or political tribes, I want to stay away from that. So that's why I said I'm longing for a, a, the kind of politics that goes beyond pa party politics. Because I really think we live in an age in which politics is beyond left versus right. It's, new things are happening. There are major fractures, generational fractures, number one, but also one big fracture between the urban and the countryside. In Austria, across Europe, we have seen in this country as well this pattern in which the big cities vote mostly towards more liberal ideas or candidates and the countryside does the opposite. How do we bridge this gap? So in order to be able to reach out, we need to think beyond the boxes of left versus right. Therefore, I am, of course, aware of the importance of organizing uh, within the civil society, trade unions, but I'm a little bit cautious when it comes to collective identities. Let's take another batch of three. There's one there, one there, and one there. If we take you first, sir, thank you. Thank you. Uh, following Brexit, I feel a stranger in my own land. Um, and people do say that uh, in a democracy, you get the government you deserve. But I just wonder whether you feel there is a viable 
alternative to democracy? That's a provocative question. That is a provocative Let's question. take the question over there and then I'll come to you, sir. Uh, you've sort of touched around the edge of this already, but could you say something about the role of fear in the development and maintenance of populist movements? It seems to me that populism often occurs in the wake of um, an unsettling event, a financial crisis, a, a war, a political crisis, and it, fear is a very dominant emotion, and it's one that's very easily exploited. Uh, we, I won't uh, elaborate on it, but it seems to me that it's a, it plays a, a very central role in, in this phenomenon. So it'd be very interesting to hear what you have to say. And then just, just here. I'd just like to ask, um, is that on? Yeah, I'd like to ask a question about the role of the media. I think that people very often say, I, I buy that paper or I listen to that broadcast, and it's only telling them what they already know and believe and people don't seem to get access to alternative views i think that's quite important uh, three more excellent questions so um is there a viable alternative to democracy uh, there's a question about the role of fear in the development of populism and then this question about the media which i think relates to what we were saying earlier about the public sphere is how can people encounter views different to their own I think we live in, a, in an age in which emotions are so important. It is, it is an age of anxiety, um, fear for sure, but also resentment in so many ways and the bitterness that comes with, with that resentment. We need to understand, and, and it, this perhaps brings us back to you know, our, our, one of our earlier questions. Around the 2000s, early 2000s, there was so much optimism in the world. I remember both in media and academia reading so many articles <laughs> predicting how we would all become a big global village and national boundaries were going to become redundant, nationalism was going to disappear, religiosity, religion was going to wither away. Um, that didn't happen, none of that happened. Maybe to a certain extent, of course, we did become much more interconnected, that is for sure. But the opposite was also there. And I think it's incredibly important for us to understand who are the people who suffered from that process of globalization, who did not benefit from all those decades of globalization? And it is important for us to, to understand their experience of the same story. But at the same time, um, this should not push us in the other direction, you know, discarding democracy, discarding the idea of humanism. These are precious values. They are flawed for sure, but it's, much, it's, it's a better attitude to work on them, to try to improve them. Also because I think we talked about how memory was important. We should not forget the opposite, how nationalism, tribalism, isolationism carried us in very dangerous directions not that long ago. It's still living it's in, in living memory. So my approach is, yes, it is the age of emotions, but we need to understand how those emotions um, came, came forward. Many people are worried about whether their children will find equal job opportunities. Many people, I am a, I am a nomad. I understand that many people can be worried about foreigners. I understand that many people can be worried about immigrants or, or maybe losing their culture. I can understand these fears. And I think it's okay to have fears. 
You know, as writers, we are anxious creatures. How can I look down upon other people's anxieties? But my point is, it is not okay when countries are guided by fear. Because when we are guided by fear, we have made the worst mistakes, and human history is full of these mistakes. So let's indeed talk about our fears and anxieties. But it has been also a big mistake on the part of the liberal intelligentsia, intellectuals, to look down upon many people's emotions. If I belittle other people's emotions, including their fear, what I will be doing is to push them towards the lap of the far right, because that is one public space in which their emotions are not belittled, you know, um, judged, and they can voice it freely. So that is a big mistake. It, it, it really pains me to see, unfortunately, populist demagogues connecting better with people's emotions than many democratic or liberal-minded leaders. We need to be able to speak that language. We need to be able to have that kind of empathy. I frankly, I don't know if you will agree, but I frankly think it was a big mistake on the part of Hillary Clinton when throughout her campaign, she called half of Trump's voters a basket of deplorables. You know, you can criticize Trump and we must criticize him and, and, and many others like him. But to say that everyone who voted for him is either, you know, deplorable or this or that is, is a big, big mistake and it's wrong. Not everyone who voted for Brexit is a xenophobe. Not everyone who voted for Brexit is against the EU. We have to understand that. Not everyone who voted for Trump is an Islamophobe. We need to be able to speak about this in a more nuanced way. Because if we don't, that duality again helps people like Trump. That's, that's my main concern. And what role does the media play in, in this? I think the media's role is in incredibly important. Uh, like many of you, I too criticize journalists, you know, uh, I have all kinds of criticism. But also coming from Turkey, I have learned the incredible importance of the media because that was the very first thing we lost in Turkey. And once you lose the independence of the media, but also the diversity of media, it becomes much easier for, for a society, for a regime to go backwards because there's no one to hold these leaders accountable. There's no one to ask the right questions. So for me, that's incredibly important, the diversity. Mm. But of course, the challenge is how do we make people hear each other's voices across the echo chambers? I honestly think we need to put more effort into this. And for that to happen, we need to move beyond party politics. Because if I only speak to my voters, if someone else speaks only to their party voters, again, we are not speaking across, you know, across that big, big gap, which is widening, unfortunately. So in my opinion, this is going to be the biggest challenge for, for all of us. How do we talk to people who have voted differently, who think differently, and yes, who might have even voted for Trump or, or for Marine Le Pen? How do we communicate? I think we've probably got time for one final batch of questions. So there is a question there and there. We'll go there first and then we'll come to you, ma'am. I've never asked a question here before, ever, so it's the first time I've ever done this. And I've come to listen to lots of these talks. I'm very interested in what you said about feminism and patriarchy and the role of women in public debate. Because even in this room tonight, the first six questions were from men. And that happens a lot. Women are very... I don't know whether it's... We're just more reluctant to do it, more reluctant to, you know, to say what we feel. 
Yeah. That, that's my experience. Thank you. And I think we have another question from a woman. In the... Thank um, you. Thank you. I'm very interested in your idea of the public space mm -hmm. and the points you were making about how difficult it is to create that public space, mm -hmm. not in a kind of party political way and not in a negative way. Mm -hmm. But I ask the question, what is the time poverty that the average ordinary citizen has today, what do you think that contributes to why we don't have that debate? Because to me it seems like that might be one cause. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to know your view and whether there are others. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I, I'm so glad you, 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 you raised this. Recently in a talk I, I mentioned this I used to go to schools in Turkey a lot, uh, also because I published a children's book. And that gave me a chance to observe very young kids, children in, in Turkey. And it was always amazing to see how so many of them have so much empathy and courage, ideas, brilliant ideas, imagination. But also it's interesting to see when you talk to eight-year-old, nine-year-old girls, they are much more, even more confident than boys. You know, they want to do so many things, achieve so many things. And then I would go to high schools to give talks and everything has changed. What we have taught um, girls, especially in countries like Turkey, all across the Middle East, when I say we, the society, the school, the culture, the entire culture, is to lose their individuality. And is to be very aware of what other people might say about them. This is a major concern which is not only pertinent to countries like Turkey, it is much more universal. And, and I, I agree with you, you know, women speak less, they have lots of ideas, but usually what happens is when you give a talk, afterwards women come and say, you know, I agree with you or I disagree with you, that what you said doesn't make sense, but why didn't you share it in the room? We are a little bit more reluctant when it comes to sharing our views. And therefore, I think it has to be an exercise. I, I find it difficult sometimes myself, but I try to push myself because I see my own upbringing, the things I have internalized, sometimes without even being aware of it. So I say to myself, I should be able to, 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 to say you know, my thoughts. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, I, I go to Davos sometimes for, for more cultural uh, debates. And at some point in, in Davos, they try to apply um, a quota, especially for companies that send speakers from the Middle East, because all their speakers were male. And so they said at some point, if there are five speakers, at least one of them needs to be a woman. So that's the quota. And the companies from the Middle East, they responded by sending four speakers instead of five. <laughs> Just, of course, I'm generalizing, not everyone did this, but enough of them did this. So there is a very systematic underlying, you know, it's not only us women um, diminishing our own voices, but the culture, the society, even the workplace, we need to be aware of that. So maybe that's why, again, coming from Turkey, I, I don't belittle social media. It's a big cons debate among writers. I know many American authors who are very much against the social media, but for us, when you come from a country like Turkey, social media is also a public space, an interesting one, a new one. And I think it's a bit like the moon. It has a bright side and a dark side. For sure, the dark side is there's so much slander, misinformation, hate speech, 
uh, and it can't be regulated because it moves so fast and all the legal changes are just lagging behind. But there is a brighter side as well, which enables minorities, people who live not necessarily in the big cities or at the you know, center of public debates, to, to engage, to participate, to be part of something beyond the town they're living in. And I see lots of women participating, particularly young women. So when you look at Facebook users, Twitter users in Turkey and across the Middle East, half of them, yeah, slightly above half of them are women. To me, this is important because these are women who don't necessarily have a space or a voice outside their houses. Just the opposite, they're being pushed into the house because we're being told our main role is motherhood and being you know, good wives and, and staying in the private space. So there are some alternative areas too that we should be thinking as public space, not only the urban space, but that, that said, I think public space in a more traditional sense is also going to be incredibly important. But the only way to make it vital and, and, and vivid is by, by bringing a diversity of voices. Because if we hear only the same privileged voices again and again, that is not a public debate, that is not public space. What concerns me is when I look at the debates on TV, in academia, everywhere, it's always a duality. You have an anti-something speaker situated against the pro-something speaker. Even in academia, you know, firmly atheist scholar against the firmly theist scholar, nobody's really listening to the other. It's not an intellectual exchange. You just stick by your guns and, and, and make your point and try to get the audience support. That, that's, that's not an intellectual conversation. So how do we go beyond? How do we move this ratings culture that we see, we see on t TV? Uh, for me, it's, it's very important to diversify the public space, but also to include more nuances, whether it's on social media or the, or the urban space. Well, I'm very sorry that that's all we've got time for. Thank you for an extraordinarily rich and wide-ranging Conversation. I think you've demonstrated what you said was the task of the, the writer from the public intellectual, which is to raise questions. And I think we're all going to go away tonight um, worrying about the nature of democracy, freedom, uh, and liberal values. Now, you have re you've reminded us rightly that we should not be complacent or uncritically optimistic about the progress of liberal values. But I do think that occasions like this are an example of civil society in the public sphere in action. So thank you all and thank you to our audience online for taking part. May, may I add just, just one little thing? You know, we, when we talk about pessimism yeah. and optimism, I, I really like what Gramsci used to say. He used to talk about the, the pessimism of the intellect because when we ask these intellectual questions, of course, we feel more pessimistic. But he also used to talk about optimism of the heart, optimism of the will, because when you talk with people, connect with people, so maybe we need both. You know, not only pessimism, but uh, half pessimism, half optimism, perhaps. Um, so on that note of half pessimism, half optimism, I want you all to join me in thanking Ilya Shafak for a wonderful talk this evening. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations. <laughs>